Well, we've come full circle in this series about loving generously, where we joined the Donovan family who have gone from just writing a check, a more immature sort of Christianity, to serving at the soup kitchen to a more mature way of walking in Christ, to actually inviting the people who go to the soup kitchen into their lives and even to the fundraising banquet for the soup kitchen. As you may recall, the wealthy were not interested in eating with the poor. The donors were not unlike the chief priests and Pharisees in our gospel lesson who snubbed the king's invitation. In fact, they were trying to arrest Jesus and kill him at the time. But the great grace news is that the king who is God in this story is more concerned with filling the banquet hall than excluding or even judging them. The imagery of a wedding is the very climatic image of scripture, the final wrap-up of the entire Bible, namely the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read of in Revelation 19.9. Jesus makes extensive use of this imagery of a festive meal, a noonday feast to specify the nature of the party the king celebrates and gives for his son's wedding. This parable is important to read in the context of such a gracious invitation to sit together with Christ Jesus, as told in Ephesians 2.6. Whether it be from the Old Testament, antitypes, the gospel events, present realities, or that end-time promise. The world has been summoned precisely to a party, to be reconciled and reconciling one another at the dinner by the Lamb of God. Judgment is pronounced only in the light of the acceptance or decline of such an invitation. Jesus is speaking for openers about the rejection by the authorities of his invitation to believe in him, but only for openers. This parable reaches far beyond the Jews of Jesus' day and even beyond the Jew and Gentile conflicts of the early church. It ultimately reaches the nature of both salvation that he offers to the whole world and of the judgment he pronounces on the rejection of that offer. In the parable, the king, who represents God, has his servants go out and invite everyone and to join in his son's wedding celebration, which represents that feast of the lamb at the end of the age. The key here in this parable is the invitation, the invitation to the wedding feast. It's offered as graciously to the first invited guests who were recipients of the king's favor. By his gracious invitation, he had said to the very last one of them, you're okay in my book. 
I want you at the party. The invitation you see is the principal judgment in this parable, the sentence of vindication from which all the incidental judgments in the story subsequently proceed. However, it is a judgment filled with grace, and it never once through the whole of the parable loses its status as such. But when it is refused in distrust, when the first guest on the list contradict the king's you're okay with their own outright refusal to believe him, judgment simply descends on them. But it does not lose its vindicating character. He still wills nothing but the party. If they won't accept the vindication that he offers, that's no skin off his nose. He'll just rub them off the list, still vindicated, but go and hunt for others who can recognize a good deal when they see it and when they hear it. So the guests are invited as replacements. Likewise, they are recipients of this king's favor. He doesn't care that they look like pigs and smell worse. He doesn't care that they don't know the difference between hors d'oeuvres and Havana cigars. He doesn't care that they eat with their hands and blow their nose without handkerchiefs. In other words, he doesn't make any stipulation about them at all. This is the beautiful thing. They do not have to get their act together in order to be worthy of the party. Any more than the prodigal son had to guarantee amendment of life before he got to partake of the fatted calf. They have only, like the prodigal, to accept, to accept, hear me on this, to accept the acceptance of the king and to go with the flow. The king and the prodigal father, you see, are party people. They will take only yes for an answer. Anybody who wants to say no has gone to hell already. It's that simple. All the above is true of the man without the wedding garment, as it is of all the rest. Nobody in the parable is outside of the king's favor. Everybody starts out by being, as far as the king himself is concerned, irrevocably in. The invitation that is the judgment starts forever, reaching out to all the world. What I hope you can realize is that you are already invited. You are included in the king's feast. That is the good news. You are in. Nobody is kicked out who wasn't already in. Hell may be an option, but if it is, it is one that is given to us only after we've already received the entirely non-optional gift of sitting together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And even for those in hell, God never withdraws the gift because, as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. We, like the guests, may cease to care about our acceptance but God never has a change of heart about having offered us acceptance in the first place. 
He loves us. He loves you no matter what. Because that is the very nature of who he is. Love. Love itself. Surely this is good news. And accordingly, while this parable certainly says that God, like the king, will tell those who refuse to trust him to go to hell, hell nevertheless remains radically distant, radically unnecessary. There will never be any reason from God's point of view for anyone to end up there precisely because God and Jesus has made his grace and not, hear this, not our track record, the sole basis for salvation. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation in the world as it is held in Christ Jesus because there is nothing in the world, neither height nor depth nor any other thing, and especially not our long since canceled skin, sins that can separate us from the very love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The entire world is home free at the eternal party. The only ones who will not enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb are those who, in the very thick of the festivities, refuse to believe that they are at it or confuse that they can somehow earn it and thereby reject the gift. So what gets in the way of our accepting the invitation? Theologian Robert Capon suggests the man without the wedding garment is speechless precisely because there is no good reason that unfaith can give for not trusting such a sweet deal. Bad reasons? There's plenty. Try a few on him for size. Imagine the first one being assuming he was one of the first invited guests, that he just happened to be out of town when the King's SWAT team paid their call. He might have said, if he thinks I'm going to put on an unfitted tuxedo and hobnob with all those deadbeats. Or there's the second assumption, assuming he was dragged to the party with the group too. Hey, I want to be recognized for myself, not just accepted as somebody to put on a monkey suit. Or the third person, assuming he was a gate crasher, says maybe if I say nothing and just look dumb, he won't notice how poorly I'm dressed. Do you see? Do you see that if he had said anything, anything at all, if he had even for the worst and the most stupid reason, put himself in relation with the king, he would have been all right. There's nothing to which the king, who operates for no reason whatsoever, can give an absolving, cannot give an absolving reply. To number one, I imagine the king very well would have said, oh, just shut up, will you, and have a drink on the house. That's the words of a gracious king. Or to the number two person, dummy, the monkey suits are just for fun. It's the people in them that I went to bother, to the bother of dragging them here. Try the caviar, it's free. Or the third group, 
third person, Turkey. You actually think I invited all those losers because they passed some kind of test? Relax. This whole party is free. But because this man said nothing, because he would not bring himself to relate to the king in any way, the reassurances that the king might have given him remain unheard. And so Jesus brings down on him the sentence of condemnation that he's already invoked upon himself by not trusting, by not being open to a relationship. Bind him hand and foot. He has the king say to the servant and throw him into the outer darkness out there where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus isn't always this harsh. He's trying to get our attention. In the parable of the prodigal son, where he's at pains to, he goes at pains to portray unqualified grace and acceptance. He has the father rush out and plead with the elder brother reassuring him that they're of their unbreakable relationship. But then that may be because the elder brother was willing to bellyache openly about the indiscrimination of grace itself. He made a god-awful speech, but at least he wasn't speechless. Grace still looks to triumph in the end. In this parable, though, as in the parable of the coins, it is judgment that finally has the last word. Judgment that falls like a thunderclap on the refusal of grace. And that, in the process, defines the true nature of hell. For hell, ultimately, is not the place of punishment for sinners. Sinners are not punished at all. In fact, the very gates of heaven are open for just such as this, those sinners, as they say yes to grace. Hell is simply the nowhere that is the only thing left for those who will not accept their acceptance by grace, who will not believe that at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, free for nothing, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world actually declared he never intended to count sins in the first place. But to offer a get-out-of-jail free card called grace. So what are we to make? Of many are called, but few are chosen. Just this. The sad truth of our fallen condition is that we won't want that we don't want anything to do with a system of salvation that works by grace, grace through faith. We want our merits to count. We want them to be rewarded. We want everybody else, even their raunchy behavior, to be punished. The amazing thing is God offers heaven to everyone in the world for nothing. The few are chosen because most of us get suspicious of such a generous free gift. 
It is our human nature. We overanalyze it rather than just receive it. Or we worry and focus on others possibly getting more than us. But God gives the whole of heaven away with no down payment, no interest or payments. In fact, we can't pay anything for it, nor are we truly worthy. The beautiful thing is that he makes hell absolutely unnecessary for anybody. The only catch is you have to be almost as crazy as this God to make the deal because your very instinct will be to distrust such a crazy arrangement. You have to be willing to believe in our operation that would put a a respectable God out of the deity business, which nicely enough lands us right back at the parable. A king who throws a party any other king would be ashamed of, representing a God who refuses to act like one, and hell only for idiots who insist on being serious and having it their way. Let's face it. Loving generously will look a bit crazy, but it's so much fun. And it is the way of life. God graced me an opportunity to outdo one another as we've talked about in showing hospitality this week. When a Comcast crew finally showed up after a three-month delay, they were delayed by restoring people after Harvey. I was really angry about the delay, I'll be honest. I had complained many a time to the people on the phone. But here, finally, were these workmen to dig a ditch. As they arrived, I realized that these were some of the very invisible ones, the heroes that we've been being challenged by this series to see and acknowledge. And so I shoved my anger aside, realizing they were not it was not their fault. And I welcomed them with open arms and I offered them a drink, told them how much I appreciated them and then all the extra work that they surely had been doing after Harvey and asked how it had been for them and going and seeing all the devastation. And then I just listened. When the fellow discovered that I spoke Spanish, he quickly slipped into Spanish and I leaned in even more to try and follow what he was telling me. But the fun part was to see the surprise on first the first young man from El Salvador. When I offered him a drink and had him come in and was telling him how much I appreciated him, he said, can I get my friends? And he brought the other two, one from, another from El Salvador and the other from Mexico. And there we sat around the coffee pot having beverage and talking, and one of them said, where are we? Is this heaven? You see, it took nothing out of my day, and it added so much more. I got voted as having a, a level seven in my Spanish, much to my surprise, by one of these men. But I imagine that day I very well might have been entertaining angels. We have an extravagant king 
welcoming all to the banquet. How are we to model this as well? How might we respond in thanksgiving with the tithe from all that he has so generously given us? For this is an act of worship to give back to the great giver. So I invite you this day to bring your pledge card with a one-time offering if you're a visitor or with your annual offering and place it before the banquet table of the Lamb. Come into his courts with thanksgiving and show him the honor he is due for his glory. Amen.